right. All right, Soma. That was, uh, I think that was more epic than the epic uh, intro. Definitely more epic. You guys haven't learned it yet. You'll, you'll start to sing it. I know you, Matt Rugi. You'll sing it eventually. Um, anyway, how are you guys doing tonight? Awesome. Sweet. So, as you probably know, we live in a politically correct culture where you can't say anything without pissing somebody off. Um, recently, though, there's one person that has sort of like bucked this trend, and his name is Donald Trump. Uh, <clears throat> Donald Trump says whatever the heck he wants. Donald Trump calls women fat. He says immigrants are all criminals. He tells women that they're emotional because they're on their period in front of a live national audience. He just doesn't care. He doesn't care about anything that he says. This guy does not give a rip about anything. Uh, Honestly, (coughs) I can't think of a more offensive person than Donald Trump. Maybe Kanye. And... I can't think of a more offensive passage than the one we're going to cover tonight. Um, People get angry because of this passage. Uh, It says things that our culture hates, that our culture finds highly offensive. Um, But we're going to tackle this super controversial passage tonight. All right, let me go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, um, I know that your word has authority, God, and that what I'm about to say tonight, um, it's not on my own authority, it's not my own opinions, God, but it is your word, Lord. So I pray that you would just um, break down walls, um, soften our hearts to hear what it is that you have for us tonight, Lord, and um, let us just come out of this night just more encouraged by the goodness uh, of your grace, God, and the goodness of your gospel. God, may we remember that you came down and you rescued us and you pursued us, and it is only by your grace that we find our righteousness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Chris Wozniki, and I'm on staff here at SOMA. And right now, we are in a series in the book of Romans called Religion Kills. And we're seeing that putting our hope in religion or or performance or even spirituality is ultimately a false hope that leads to death and that the only real hope is actually found in Jesus uh, and real life is found in him, nowhere else. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at this concept that religion kills. We're going to be looking at Paul's argument about this. So what I want to do now is I sort of want to just pull out and sort of just look at the big picture argument that Paul is making in these several chapters that we'll be looking at. So Paul starts off uh, in chapter 1 by making a distinction between two kinds of people. The first kind of person are those kinds of people that make up their own religion. They sort of have their own spirituality, right? And then the other group of people are those that just so strictly adhere to these religious rules and performance and think that they're right with God because of these things. So he starts to poke holes in both of these views. First off, he goes after those who make up their own spirituality, and then he goes after those people that try to earn God's favor by keeping all the rules and doing all the right religious things. And then he ends up giving some examples of what that looks like. And his point in all of this is to make the point that neither one of those ways actually works. Putting your trust in spirituality, putting your trust in religion... It's like putting your trust in an un, 
uninflated flotation device, right? Like Titanic sinking, you grab this uninflated floaty, it's not going to do anything for you. Maybe it'll offer a sense of false security because you think, okay, I have a floaty, but it's, you're going to drown, right? Or, or it's like jumping into shark-infested waters in a shark cage that's made out of, like, meat, Right? Like, that's absolutely stupid. You have this false sense of security. It's like, okay, I'm in this cage. I'm protected. But in reality, it's exactly because of that thing, because of the cage. That is exactly why the sharks are going to go after you, because they smell that. And they're going to take you out. And you're going to die. And, and it's the same thing. It, putting your hope in religion, your performance, your spirituality, those things offer a false sense of security. And none of those things actually save those things actually lead to death, and only Jesus leads to life. So tonight, we're going to look at his first part of the argument. It's against those who make up their own way to God. So if you have your Bibles or apps, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Romans 1, 18 to 25. All right, and it says... <clears throat> The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godless and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. For since the creation of the world, of the world God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. So if you're following along and you're taking notes, here's your first point. God has revealed himself and God is rightfully angry. God has revealed himself and God is rightfully angry. People don't like that second part uh, at all, but it, it's true. I remember being on, um, when I was in college, being on campus uh, in front of the bookstore, and there were some guys with these yellow pick, like yellow picket signs. Have you guys ever seen those people anywhere? Okay, so there were these guys with these yellow picket signs and megaphones, and on all of these signs, they're screaming out, God is angry, God's wrath is coming, and, and these signs had all these lists of the kinds of people that were going to get God's wrath, um, and that God was angry at, and that he was going to send to hell. Honestly, I don't think that's the best way, uh, most loving way to talk about Jesus. And I remember standing there and sort of having this inner dialogue with myself, thinking, like, should I say something to these people? Should I, like, go up to them? Like, they, they say they're Christians, so they're my brothers and sisters. Should I go up to them and say something? Should I tell them how their message is sort of right, but how their approach is definitely not going to win anyone over to Jesus? And so I'm thinking this, and some guy walks up to, in front of this, this group of people with their signs, and he just starts yelling at them. And he turns around and yells at everybody else, these people are liars. And I'm like, oh, snap, like, it's about to go down. And, and he just starts screaming out, like, no, like, God is love. Like, God wants you to be happy. Like, 
he doesn't want you to feel bad about yourselves. Like, don't listen to these people. Both groups had a partial grasp on truth, right? But some people tend to see God just completely in the second way. They think that if there's a God, then God must be good, which is right. Um, But they think that if God is good, then he has to have my interests in mind. He would never really be angry at me because God loves me. And if he's really good, he would never do anything uh, to get in the way of my happiness. And of course, happiness and what's good is defined according to myself. But that's not exactly true. Because yes, God is a God of love. And that is absolutely so true. That God is love. That's what John tells us, that God is love. But because God is a God of love, that also means he's a God of justice. And because he's a God of justice, that also means that he has wrath towards injustice. So what is wrath? Well, first let me tell you what it's not. Wrath is not a a capricious or uncontrolled sort of anger. Right? In Greek, there are two sort of two basic words for anger. The first is thumos. That's where we get thermometer or thermostat or thermos. This is a sort of just red hot, like blazing sort of anger. The kind that just overcomes people and they lose control and they just like smack somebody. Or this is the kind of anger that we see in road rage. Yesterday I was driving on the freeway and um, I was with Angel and some lady, like I, I, I never saw her. I just never saw her. But she comes up to me. Apparently, she's, like, flipping me off, screaming. And I'm just, like, driving along, and Angel's, like, just laughing. I'm like, why are you laughing? She cuts in front of us, like, breaks the carpool, like, divider lane. Apparently, I didn't let her out of the carpool. Not my fault. Not my problem. Um, <laughs> and she cuts in front of us, and she just, like, hits the brakes. And I'm like, oh, this lady, why is she doing that? I don't, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so then Angel told me, she was like, oh, did you see that lady? She was pissed off at you. I was like, oh, really? Like, I didn't notice. So we drove up to her, and I just waved at her. And um, she didn't even look. Like, she was so embarrassed because she had just lost all control. She had just, like, thrown all of her wrath at us and then was embarrassed of the fact that um, she was like that. But her bumpers, her bump, her license plate was a USC plate, so it all made sense. Um <laughs> Uh, anyway, so it's this, this uh, uh, impulsive, passionate sort of anger. Uh, the second word is orge, which is this settled, abiding condition. It's sort of, it's controlled, right? And that's what God's wrath is like. It's patient, right? It's controlled. It doesn't fly off the handle. The wrath of God isn't like human wrath because all human wrath, all human anger is distorted by sin, Right? And God has no sin. So his wrath isn't distorted by sin at all. It is perfect and just and righteous. So why is God angry? Paul tells us it's because God has made himself clear to everybody. Right? And he's made himself clear in his creation so that everyone knows that there is a God and he deserves to be worshipped. And he's imprinted himself and his image on every single person. It's what uh, John Calvin calls the sensus divinitatis. Basically, it's this sense, this feeling um, that every human being has that there is a God. Like there's this inborn sense that there is a God. And Paul says that people have suppressed this truth, right? It's not that they forgot that God exists. It's not like, oh, they didn't just notice 
that God exists. It's that they live in active denial and suppression of the truth that God is real and that he deserves to be worshipped. And they do that because they don't want to bow down to God. Right? People live in denial. Because if there actually is a God who created all people and who created all things, then we can expect that we have certain obligations towards this God. That God, this sort of God makes certain demands of us. And he asks us to do certain things. And he asks us to interact in certain ways with him. And sinful human beings just don't like that. But the fact is, just because you deny that something exists, that doesn't mean it goes away. Right? That might work when you're five years old with the monsters under your bed. You pull up the covers and they disappear. I don't know where they go, but they disappear. Um, that won't work for God, though. Right? That might work for your homework in class, but at the end of the semester, that's not going to work for your GPA. Right? Denying the fact that you have stuff, work to do, is not going to change the fact that you have work to do. So Paul says people suppress the truth of God because they don't like the fact that there is this God. So what they do is they worship themselves, right? They worship other things. Because worshiping other things is a lot easier than worshiping the true God. So people worship money. They worship family. They worship success, beauty, fame. In other words, people worship the gifts that God has given instead of the one who's given those gifts. Or they decide that they're going to make up their own version of religion, right? It's a sort of buffet style of religion. If you guys have ever been to Hometown Buffet or Vegas Buffet, you know buffets never end well, right? Buffets always end with Pepto-Bismol or something like that. And it's the same thing with God. Like that buffet religion approach, it's not going to end well. But, but people, what they do is they give God this buffet treatment and they're like, okay, like I'm going to take Jesus as the main, like the main entree. And, um, Okay, but like some of this stuff that Jesus says, like stuff about hell, don't like that. Stuff about giving, don't like that. The stuff about sacrificing and discipleship, don't like that. But the whole like salvation going to heaven, like yes, give me some of that. I'll take that. Uh, Maybe I'll take some meditation from Buddhism because that's pretty in right now. Um, I'll add a scoop of the secret so I can get whatever I want just by thinking it. Um, And I'll end with dessert with maybe some Oprah topped off with some raw bell to kind of just make it sort of Christian-y. Um, but both of these things, the first approach, right, chasing the gifts, and the second approach, making up your own spirituality or way to God, both of those ways are idolatry. That's what Paul says. Both of those ways are idolatry. And both of those things are a slap to the face of God. And God is rightfully angry. Imagine this. Imagine um, the situation. My wife comes up to me and... Um, she says to me, sweetheart, like, I just love you so much for who you are. Uh, and I'd be like, oh, thanks, babe. Like, I love you too. You're the best. Um, and she's like, okay, like, I just love how handsome and tall you are. And I'd be like, okay, like, for sure, the handsome piece. Um, not too sure about the tall part, but like, okay, like, we'll run with it. Um, she's like, oh, I love just the way you're so musical and the way you play that guitar. I'm like, what the heck? Like, I don't even play, like, a guitar. And then she's like, I just, babe, like, I love you so much. I love how pale and, and white you are. You're like bleached snow. <laughs> At that point, I'd be like, what? Like, who are you even talking about? Like... Do you not see me, right? Like none of that stuff except the handsome stuff, like none of that matches up 
with who I am. Like, how do you think I would feel if she honestly, like, meant that? I'd be angry, right? And that's exactly what people do to God. Like, God has revealed himself clearly, and he says, I'm like this, I'm like this, and I'm like this. And people are like, nah, like, I don't like that. Like, I'd rather God to be like this, like this, and like this. And they twist what God is really like. So ultimately, he says, fine. Like, if you don't want to worship me, you can go ahead and pursue your man-made religion. Like, you can do that. Like, go for it. Do whatever you want. Like, we'll see how that ends out for you. <clears throat> it almost reminds me of when your significant other uh, says to you, it's like, oh, like, you want to hang out with your friends tonight? Okay, go for it. See, yeah, you're, you have freedom to do that. Just, yeah, go, go have fun, right? And you're like, um, should I... Am I supposed to do that? And they're like, okay, just see how that works out for you. Like, <laughs> both of those things are not going to work out for you, okay? It, you, if you haven't found that out yet, you'll find that out. Both of those things don't work out for you. Both of those things have serious consequences. So what does it look like to walk away from God in, in that sense, right? Well, what does it look like when God says, okay, like, do your own thing? Like, what does it look like when you decide to do that? Or when human beings decide to do that? What does it look like when they walk away and worship the things that God has given instead of God himself? What does it look like to be left all to ourselves? That's what Paul addresses next, uh, starting at verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to, the shame, to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural la- relations <clears throat> for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men commanded, committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, not only, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. <coughs> There's a very important spiritual principle at play here. This is your second fill-in. It's that disordered worship leads to disordered desires which ultimately lead to death. Disordered worship leads to disordered desires, which ultimately lead to death. In other words, when we worship the wrong things and begin to love the wrong things, then we'll start to do the wrong things, and doing the wrong things ultimately leads to death. Paul makes this point by talking about homosexuality. He says that this set of behaviors listed here is an example of what happens when we exchange the glory of God in order to worship other things. What Paul is saying here is so culturally offensive. So culturally offensive. And you know how I know this is true? Because this topic makes everybody in here nervous at some point. Am I right? 
The passage has caused so much pain, so much anger, so much hurt on both sides of this cultural divide. And some people say that ultimately the freedom to be who you are, to be yourself, is what matters the most, as long as you don't hurt anyone else. Others get angry and say, how dare you say these sorts of things to people who, if, if they're born like this, right? They have no ability to control that. Other people, uh, some Christians will say that, that Paul has no issue with monogamous, committed gay relationships. He's just talking about uh, just, just ones that, don't, that aren't in committed, married sort of relationships. And what makes this topic hard to address is that for most of us, it's very personal, right? Most of us know at least somebody who struggles with same-sex desires. Most of us probably have friends who are gay and see that there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. And it's really hard to say to these people that we love them, that we care for them, when, when something that they feel is so much a part of who they are is something that God says that this is not right in his eyes. It's hard to say that, right? It's hard to say, like, you feel this is a part of who you are, but God says it's not okay. So that puts Christians who believe in the truth and authority of Scripture and and what God is saying in this passage, it puts Christians who believe that in a really hard spot. So how do we understand this passage? What's Paul really saying here? So what I want to do is I want to take a step back before addressing that and start where Paul starts. Because Paul starts with worship. That's where he starts. Because remember what Paul said about worship. He says that we exchanged the glory of God and worshiped created things. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we made ourselves the object of worship. Right? Life isn't about God. Ultimately, life is about us. That, that is what Paul is saying here. So what happens when we remove God from the equation, right, and worship ourselves instead? What happens is that man becomes the measure of all things. Right? If you take God out of the picture, our desires become the ultimate standard of, of whether our actions are right or whether our actions are wrong. If you don't believe that that's true, that if you take God out of the picture, then our desires become the ultimate standard, then either you're in denial you're inconsistent, maybe you just haven't thought too much about it. But it's true. And that is exactly what the smartest, most consistent, most respected atheists have always said. Nietzsche says that if God doesn't exist, then the ultimate standard is a drive to power. Might is right. Sartre says that, that if, if God isn't real, then it's up to us to create our own meaning, to create what we think is right and wrong. Terry Eagleton, who's a a British Marxist um, literary critic, he says that if if God is out of the picture, then everything's permitted. Because with God out of the picture, there's no such thing as permission. Who are you asking permission from, right? The permission to do X or to do Y goes out the window if there is no God in the picture. So all the smartest, most consistent atheists agree that without God, our desires become the ultimate standard for all of our actions, Let me make something just super clear with this passage. Paul is talking about actions. 
right? He's not talking about inclinations. He's not talking about attitudes. He's not talking about genetics. He's talking about actions, right? What Paul is saying is once you remove God from the picture, you're going to do whatever you desire, whether that is right or whether that's wrong in his eyes. If there's no God to answer to, or in this case, if we choose to suppress the truth that God has revealed, then there are no standards to which, which to say this desire is right or this desire is wrong or this thing should be acted upon or this thing should not be acted upon. But there, if, if there is a God who has actually revealed himself and actually has revealed his purposes for human beings right, and has, has revealed his will, then our desires are not the ultimate judge and standard of what is right or what is wrong. One might have inclinations. One might have desires. Those desires might have developed over time. Or those desires are things that that people might have been born with. But according to Paul here, the source of those desires doesn't actually matter. The question of whether somebody's born with this desire or, or whether it develops, that's not even relevant to Paul here. Because what Paul is saying is that just because one has a desire, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should act upon it, right? Even if it's natural, even if it's a natural part of who you are. But that's exactly what culture says about all sorts of desires, right? This is what sociologist Robert Bella calls expressive individualism. In other words, culture says that you have to discover your deepest desires and longings, and then do all that you can to realize them, right? Regardless of constraints or opposition or anything comes your way, you have to express your desires. You have to be true to yourself because your desires are the deepest part of who you are. That's what culture says. But imagine, this is an illustration that Tim Keller uses, imagine uh, an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in 800 AD. Right, he has this really strong desire and feeling uh, of aggression. Right? This is a part of who he is. Um, he, he just loves to smash and kill people and um, when they show him disrespect. Right? Now, this desire in his culture, which is, lives with a warrior ethic, which is an honor-shame culture, would see that as perfectly natural. So he says, he looks at himself, he sees these deep desires, and he says, okay, that's, that's me, that's who I am. I'm going to express that. I'm going to go ahead and, like, when someone disrespects me, I'm just going to, like, bonk him in the head. That's what I'm going to do. That desire is natural to him. That desire is a natural part of his culture. Right? It's a part of who he is. It's a part of his identity, and it's affirmed by the people around him. But should he go around just smacking, smashing people in the head? No, like, that he shouldn't, right? Just because one has a desire and because it's natural, that doesn't mean that one should act upon it. Because disordered desires ultimately lead to death. Let me make another point um, about this passage. What you worship will change who you are. Let me give you just a silly example. Scientifically proven. Stupid, but it's scientifically proven. There are some people who worship their dogs. Um, Have you ever noticed that those sorts of people start to look like their dogs? Am I right? Um, This person. (laughs) Um, It's like his hair just grew legs and like became a little creature. 
Um, looks exactly like them. The next one, uh, both of them have double chins. Just, just what happens. Um, anyway, it, it's silly, but, I mean, it's scientifically proven that this is a fact. Um, I read it on, like, Reddit or something. Um, anyway, it's true. Like, w- the things that we worship shape who we are, right? They shape our desires. They shape our actions. And that's Paul's point here, right? You worship yourself, and your desires become the ultimate standard, right? You worship money, you become greedy. You worship your image, you become arrogant and prideful. You worship your possessions, and you become envious, right? The point is, disordered desires uh, lead to death, right? Both eternally and in your everyday sort of life. So the question is, what are you really worshiping? And how is that changing who you are? If you were at our all-student encounter on Wednesday night, um, you might have seen just vividly how this worked because a couple of people shared their testimony. Um, I shared how my worshiping of achievement just turned me into this like paranoid but also prideful person. Silvana shared how her worship of her body image led her into self-hate and, and into an eating disorder. Right? Tim shared how pursuit or worshiping love turned him into the kind of person that would hurt somebody just in order to have that feeling or that sense of being loved. All of those things, paranoia, pride, eating disorders, self-hate, becoming a hurtful person, none of those things are life, right? All of that is death. And all of that flows out of the things that they and that myself worship. So what are you really worshiping and how is that changing who you are? Um, there's another major point in this passage, and if you're taking notes, it is that sin reminds us of grace. Sin reminds us of grace. Do you ever wonder why Paul starts describing the depravity of human beings by turning to homosexuality? Why is that his first point, right? Because it seems really random. Because there are so many other sins that could have served as a perfect example, right? There are so many other sins that are just as bad. Here's what C.S. Lewis has to say about that. C.S. Lewis says that if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as a supreme vice, he is wrong. It's basically unsexual sins. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasure of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. And the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. So why does Paul, if this is true, why does Paul go after this as his first topic? It's because it's part of Paul's larger argument that he's making, that religion kills. Because remember, um, first off, Paul goes against those who make up their own man-made religion. 
Right? Then he goes after those who find pride in their perf- and arrogance in their performance. These religious people, the second group of people in this case, are the, the Jewish believers in his audience. Because remember, there are two groups in this church, Gentiles and then the Jews. So the Jewish people in his audience, the Jewish Christians, they would have seen two things, idolatry and homosexuality as the prime example of why Gentiles are so messed up. Right? In the eyes of Jews of his day, homosexuality was absolutely appalling. You see this in first century Jewish literature. Right? There is just so much disgust and so much hate towards it, and they saw it as proof of why they were morally superior, and it evoked a gag reflex and just a deep disgust in their minds. And you can almost imagine them hearing Paul's words and being like, yeah, like you give it to them, Paul. Like, you tell them how much God hates their behavior. You tell them how God can't stand their sin. You tell them how messed up they are, which sounds a lot like a lot of Christians nowadays. And just as they start to feel proud of themselves, thinking, oh, thank God that isn't us, Paul says, shut up. We'll see more of this next week. But Paul basically says, shut up up because you don't get it. Like now it's your turn. Like because you do the same exact things. You have worshiped things other than God and it's actually far worse when you do it because you know who God is. These people did not. Paul exposes the attitude of these religious people because religious people think, okay, like look at this messed up world. Look at these messed up people. Thank God I'm not as messed up as they are, right? That's the attitude. And Paul says, no, like stop that, right? You're not above them. This could be you. You could be living in greed. You could be living in depravity and malice and anger and envy and murder and faithlessness and sexual sin. That could be you right now. But by God's grace, it isn't. You aren't inherently better than anyone else, right? You are only good. The only reason you're good is because God is good. You're not a better person than anyone else. So you can't look down at other people who are living in sin because your righteousness didn't come from yourself. It came from God. And that's the core of the gospel, that you have been given Christ's righteousness, not because of anything that you've done, not because you're special, not because you earned it, not because you did really good things. It was all him. So because of that, you cannot look down on sinners. Like you can't look down on racists. You can't look down on sexual sinners or greedy people or even self-righteous Christians. You can't look down on them but you will. And chances are you do. There are people in this world that you look down upon, right? So who is that? Who do you look down upon? Thinking through that is going to be so important when we're in life groups because the temptation is going to be someone's going to share some deep sin, right, that you don't struggle with and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, like that is weird or crazy or really bad. But if you get the fact that your righteousness didn't come from yourself, you can't actually think that way. Like, who do you tend to judge? I tend to judge 
super religious people. But even that's wrong. Even that shows that I don't really get that it's by God's grace that I'm righteous. This passage shows that all of us are sinners. And it is only by God's grace that we're not a lot worse. It's only by God's grace that our eyes have been opened. It is only by his grace that you follow him, that you grow in righteousness. It's all his grace that saved you. It was nothing you did. It it was just as God handed people over to sin. If you're a believer, he has handed you over to righteousness. It is only by his grace in the gospel that your disordered worship becomes true worship. It's only by his grace in the gospel that your disordered desires become ordered, godly, worshipful desires. It's only by the gospel that you've been taking from death and into life. Let me end with this. It's a rewritten um, version of this passage that we read. And basically, it's reality in light of God's grace in the gospel. Here's what it says. Therefore, God gave them over in their hearts to self-control and purity, that their bodies might be honored among them. For they kept and cherished the truth of God and worshiped and served the Creator, who is blessed forever, rather than the creature. Amen. Just as they saw fit to acknowledge God in all things, God gave them over to a sound mind, to those things which are proper, being filled with all righteousness, goodness, generosity, kindness, full of selflessness, life, healing, openness, kindliness. They are gentle in speech, always building others up, lovers of God, respectful, humble, self-effacing, inventors of good, obedient to parents, understanding, trustworthy, loving, merciful, as they know the ordinance of God and those who practice such things are possessors of life. They do the same and give hearty approval to those likewise. That's what life looks like, right? The life transformed by God when God intervenes and he pursues us and he changes our disorderly worship into orderly worship or disordered desires to ordered desires and brings us from death into life. Let me go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, um, I pray, God, that even right now in this moment, God, that you would begin to show us where our worship is disordered. God, that you would begin to show us the things that we elevate above you, the things that we pursue instead of you, God. I pray that you would show us just how that has caused death in our life. God, just how we thought that pursuing those things would actually bring life God, but in reality that they have brought death. Lord, and I pray that you would remind us that you have not called us to that, God, but you have called us to life, God, and you have set us free in order that we might live life to the full. So I pray, Lord, that you would just have our hearts, God, that you would transform us, that you would change us, God, that you would work in areas where we haven't fully surrendered to you, God, and that you would daily just give us more and more of your son and mold us more and more into uh, the image of who you are. And I pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.